I'm Jessica, and this is Homecoming, Finding Yourself in Life's Little Moments. Hi, dear listener. Well, I hope this finds you very well, wherever in the world you are, in this time of significant change and flux. And part of that is a rising up in our individual and collective awareness of the suffering and the plight of people of color, everything that's going on in the United States, which is my home country. I live here now in Australia. And things that are going on in other parts of the world that are echoes and reverberations and recognitions of that same sense of suffering and profound disenfranchisement that has been endured by people of color around the world. So I am someone who was born white. I was born in the United States, in a suburb of New York, a middle-class suburb for the most part called Dobbs Ferry on the shores of the Hudson River. And I grew up, my formative years took place there in the 60s and 70s, so that was a time of great activism and activation of what we call the civil rights movement, really gaining momentum then during that time when I was just a child. So I was reflecting back on my life in the light of this burgeoning movement, or one might say a rekindling, a resurgence, perhaps on a level that is greater than ever before, it does seem that way, a movement for civil rights and the rectification of injustice and the hardship that so many have endured. And I really believe, you know, dear listener, that one's personal experience, whatever that might be, when reflected upon and brought out into the light of day, carries with it universal meaning that any of us, in a sense, is a kind of microcosm of the whole and that what we have experienced and what we have felt and what we feel is a function and a reflection of larger cultural realities larger economic realities, larger realities of what it means to be human on on this earth at this time and over time. So to begin this podcast of reflection, I'm going to look back and kind of start back really with my grandmother because I'm realizing that having been born 
in the United States and growing up during the 60s and 70s and having a certain outlook or perspective on others. You know, it's a complex thing. These things are actually not simple. So one aspect of what I'm realizing was, and I think probably still is, although it's becoming more conscious now, as I think it is for many people, you know, our inward demeanor, our inward, inwardly held thoughts and perspectives, they might actually be subconscious or unconscious, having to do with who we are, who others are, who others who are of other races are, and what all of that means, how we see ourselves in relationship to it all. So, again, you know, it's not a simple thing. It's not a simple thing. I think for most of us, it's not simple. We can't just say we're this or that, X or Y. We believe this or that. It's much more complex than that. So it's in that light that I'm going to go back and start with my grandmother, who was born in Russia and came to the United States in 1918 to start a new life with her husband, just married. She was just 18 years old, and she was a seamstress. And she came to New York, entered through Ellis Island, like so many other immigrants at that time and and onward into the 20th century, and began to work as a costumer a seamstress, but then more and more a kind of seamstress who was really devoted to creating interesting and somewhat eccentric, somewhat colorful and evocative costumes. And she was never able to speak English very well. She didn't speak much English when she arrived in New York, and it improved over time, but not to a you know, a great degree. What did develop, however, was her ability to make costumes. And she ended up establishing her own business called Madame Berta, B-E-R-T-H-E, Costumes, in New York. And she would become, over the ensuing two or three decades, the 20s, 30s, 40s, into the 50s, she would become one of the most renowned theatrical costumers in the United States. By extension, I think one could probably safely say in the world, because so much of what was going on theatrically was happening in the United States, whether it was Hollywood, whether it was Broadway in New York and theater, whether it was the nightclubs, which were a huge new thing, whether it was, you know, Radio City Music Hall in New York and the Radio City Rockettes, for which she made the first costumes when Radio City opened in 1932. So within 10 to 15 years after arriving in New York, she was doing it she was becoming incredibly successful. And even the Depression, 
where people were really struggling. Famously, you know, a famous story in my, my mom's family is that my grandfather, who was really working for my grandmother, that was already different, would come home with bags of money because you didn't put the money in the bank, not in the 30s when things were so unsteady. It wasn't necessarily very safe to put your money in the bank. So my grandfather would bring home bags of cash that were paid to my grandmother for the costumes that she made, a lot of which were for the nightclubs, some for Broadway, some for really big stars, musicians, singers, etc. So how does all this relate to who I am and this podcast about the issues of our racial distinctions about race, about how we feel inside of ourselves, about people of different races to ourselves, specifically African Americans, I will say now in this in this light. Well, my grandmother was, because of the nature of her work, she was involved in the 30s and 40s and 50s and onward with people of African-American entertainers and singers and some of the most famous musicians. She counted as her clients the extraordinary Lena Horne singer and entertainer. I'll always remember a picture of my grandmother who stood hardly five feet fitting Lena Horne, adjusting a gown that my grandmother had made, was making for Lena Horne. It was probably around 1948, 1950. And Lena Horne, this gorgeous, statuesque woman, dwarfed by virtue of her, of her stature, my tiny little grandmother, as my grandmother was stooping down to adjust Miss Horn's gown. So that is one interesting point for me because my grandmother set a kind of tone in my family with my mom and thus me. She was involved in work that connected her in a very beautiful way at a time when there was enormous separation between African-Americans and whites and there was such incredible hardship that the African-American community was experiencing and continues to. But my grandmother really, she was just doing her thing and what her thing was was to make the best possible costumes for her clients And in this case, one of her most notable clients was Lena Horne. And my grandmother also made suits for Duke Ellington, one of the most influential musicians of the 20th century. Incredible person, Mercer Ellington. So she was, my grandmother was steeped into the entertainment world. And as a result, people such as Lena Horne and Duke Ellington, Mercer Ellington, 
Sammy Davis Jr., you know, my grandmother made costumes for the Cotton Club in Harlem, which was a famous nightclub. In fact, in 1985, when they made a Hollywood movie about the Cotton Club, they contacted my grandmother for information about her experiences creating costumes for the showgirls at the Cotton Club during the 40s and 50s and so on, 60s maybe as well. So the reason that I say this is because there was a sort of way that my grandmother set a kind of tone in my family where there was a a sort of feeling of, of a kind of naturalness and pride in the fact that my grandmother had made the costumes and the suits for the most notable, renowned African-American performers, you know, performers in the 20th century. And Lena Horne, my mama always tells me the story about Lena Horne, where my grandmother was fitting Lena Horne and Miss Horne had to undress to be able to put on the gown that my grandmother was making for her. And my mother happened to be in my grandmother's studio on 47th Street at that time. And Lena Horne took her hand and placed it over my mom's eyes. My mom was probably in her late teens and covered her eyes so that she would, you know, kind of be able to, (laughs) um, you know, my mom would not be privy to Lena Horne undressing for, for my grandmother to fit her. And at that time, uh, Lena Horne actually enrolled my mom in the most significant civil rights uh, organization, which was the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Color People. So my mom and her teens was enrolled in the NAACP by Lena Horne. And I say that and feel like I want to cry because it's so moving to me to even reflect on that fact. There was a flow, you know, between the people in my family, my grandmother, my mom, the people who came to be fitted by my grandmother for costumes and suits. And some of those People were African-American, like the greatest African-American performers, like I said. So fast forward a little bit. And I, you see, I, I believe that that actually set the stage for my mom and her thoughts and feelings. So this is part of the picture that I'm, that I'm kind of laying out here. Because my mom was enormously progressive in the 60s, that's, that's what I grew up with. She was enormously progressive in her views on black culture, on the, you know, the, the, the whole African-American contribution to the United States and presence in the United States and in the world of entertainment and in the world in general. So that goes alongside now the fact that 
I was white, I am white, and I grew up in a middle-class white village, neighborhood, town in Westchester County, New York, north of New York City. And what many of us are learning now, and what explains what I remember from back then, is that African Americans could not live amidst white people. There was something called the redlining of communities. And what that meant was that blacks could live in certain communities, and then certain communities were white, and African Americans could not live in those communities. So I grew up in that situation, and it really, in a sense, continues to exist to this day, even though it's not legally defensible anymore. There's no doubt that this entire legacy of what's called redlining and the disenfranchisement of African Americans continues on, you know? Really, it just does in a huge way. So I was growing up in this suburb of New York, middle class, beautiful suburb and a, a nice house. And, and I was, when I was six, my dad leaves and my mom is there left to really be the main person raising me in our family home. And she was working, she was teaching. So at that point, my mom hires a nanny for me to help take care of me because my mom was working and I was young, I was six. So my mom hired a woman named Ruby. And I remember Ruby's face as if it was yesterday. She would come during the day. She had a family of her own. Ruby would come during the day to care for me. When I started to go off to nursery school and kindergarten, she'd be at home cleaning. And then when I got home from school, my mom wasn't always there. So Ruby would greet me and make me a snack to eat and so on. And there were a couple of things that I remember about this, and this kind of begins to point to the complexity of this whole thing. Because Ruby was really dear to me, and she was a, a caregiver of me and someone who supported me in those young years. I'll always remember, I remember two things. One, I remember my mom driving Ruby home in the evening so she'd go back to her family. And we would drive about 20 minutes to a community called Yonkers, New York, south of where we were. And I'll always recall the feeling because that community felt so different to my community, to my neighborhood. It was very much like a city. There were a lot of apartment buildings. There was a sense of a sort of monochromatic quality, whereas my neighborhood, my street, 
had lots of trees and beautiful growing things and wonderful, you know, different houses and, and architecture. Ruby's neighborhood was very different. It was, um, I would say, there was a bleakness to it and a sense of coldness, you see, because it was all concrete or brick apartments, apartment houses. You know, I was so struck, even at that young age, I remember very vividly the difference when we would drive Ruby home to her family. Her neighborhood was very different to ours. Now, I know why. Because that was where African Americans could live. They couldn't live in my neighborhood. But Ruby lived in that neighborhood because that was where she had to live, you know? That was the redlining that we, that I understand now, explains that. So, you know, the other thing about that too, though, which is interesting, you see this, it's just, there's, there's more than, it's just interesting. We're wrought from various influences and some of them come from the larger cultural landscape, right? Like that was what was happening. African-Americans and whites were living separate from each other, very distinctly so. African-Americans could not live in the nice neighborhoods that white people were living in, like I was. I didn't know that back then, but I observed the evidence of it. So that was part of what I recall. And then I'll remember a few other things when I was about that age, say between 1965, 66, 67, and 68. So then Martin Luther King is assassinated in 1968. But prior to that, Ruby was my nanny for a period of time. And I'll always remember, you know, and this goes back to my grandmother's influence absolutely without question. I just know it. My mom absorbed the experiences that she had with my grandmother and the incredible clients that came to my grandmother, some of whom were African-American, like Lena Horne, etc., and, and Duke Ellington. So Ruby was with us and would take me on occasion in the summer down to a pool. It was a pool that was fed by spring water, and the pool was a kind of community pool, but for the middle-class houses that were around it in our neighborhood. And you could join the pool for a certain amount of money per year. So many of the neighbors were members of that pool. And if you were a member, you got a key and you could go. So my mom, because she was teaching, she'd ask Ruby to take me to watch me at the pool. And Ruby would take me down the hill and she would stay with me and I would swim in the pool and Ruby would watch me and she would be my my little, you know, my lifeguard and and uh, protector. 
and giver of care. And one day, one of the other neighbors, I believe it was a man, came to my mom and said that he was not happy that there was an African-American woman there at that pool, Ruby, caring for me. Now, my mom could be really quick-witted, and she said something which I can't exactly recall, but basically, she said something to that man that was both quick and witty and cutting. And I believe that that was the last my mom ever heard from any of the other neighbors, anyone's dissatisfaction with Ruby being with me at the pool. So my mom must have made an impression because it had an effect. So I remember that, you know, I remember that. It was part of my growing up. Now, you see, so again, there are facets of experience. My mom was amazingly broad-minded. At the same time that we were a white family growing up in a middle-class neighborhood at a time when Blacks and whites did not live in proximity to each other, and there were enormous restrictions, and still are, for so many African-American people. So all of this was like shaping me without my even realizing it. Now, in 1968, I have two very clear memories. Martin Luther King was assassinated. Okay, and what happened after that is what we're seeing now, which are extensive riots throughout the United States. And I'll always remember being in White Plains, New York, which was a small city not far from where I was living. And it was a city in which there were black neighborhoods and white neighborhoods. But there was a lot going on at that moment. I was there with either my dad or my mom. I can't remember, but I was in a pizza place, okay, on sort of the main drag in White Plains, one of the main avenues there. I was in a pizza place, 1968, April, May, 1968. And I'll always remember, so I was about eight years old. I'll always remember an African-American man coming in the door and he had his hand to his head with a white handkerchief and there was blood dripping down his forehead and covering that white handkerchief. And I'll always remember the look in that man's eyes. The look in that man's eyes told me that he had done nothing wrong and that he was hurt. He was hurt. For no fault of his own, he was hurt. And he came in, this is of course 
long before the days of cell phones and all of that, asking for help, asking someone to call an ambulance for him, for help. I'll always remember that, that man's face. He was hurt for no fault of his own. I could see it in his eyes, absolutely without question. Another memory I have from that same sort of month period, right, you know, following Martin Luther King's assassination is my mom taking me to a assembly, a, a priest, fairly well known, his name is Father Benedict Grishel, no longer alive, was speaking about the situation at the local high school, Dobbs Ferry High School, in the auditorium. The place was packed. Okay, he was a priest, but he also had an incredible reputation of spanning, bridging, you know, straddling divides. He lived in the worlds of peoples of all backgrounds, colors, cultures. He was a beautiful, beautiful man. And I went there with my mom. My mom took me. And I'll always remember how electric the atmosphere felt. And I'll remember Father Grishel saying to everybody, quoting, and he was quoting scripture, Old Testament, and he was saying to everyone who was aware clearly of all of the events that were taking place, the riots, the assassination of Dr. King, the unrest, everything that was going on, the heartache. And he said, as he quoted from the Old Testament, he said, when a peoples feel that every manner of recourse, everything has been taken from them, and they have no other way. And it's as if they've been stripped of everything. He said, they will then begin to destroy the places in which they live, their own places, their own homes, their own neighborhoods. When everything is taken from them, that's what happens. And there my mom and I were listening to Father Groeschel with all these other people, hundreds of people, the place, standing room only. People were out in the foyer. I remember it. Everyone was looking to understand and gain insight and express and feel and make sense of everything that was happening to find some kind of common ground with others in the grief that was being felt by everyone. So that was another memory 
so I'm, I'm, I'm sharing these things because this is part of the picture. It's part of what formed me. But there's more. All right, there's more. As I would realize many years hence, however, I was still a product of a middle-class white upbringing. Existentially, that's significant. If I was born black, my experience would have been very different. I was born white. My grandmother had made money and she helped support us. So she was very successful. And so we were able to live in a good neighborhood in a nice suburb of New York. And everybody around us was white. So my upbringing was of that nature. And I remember having a kind of epiphany. Many years after that, I was already away at college, attended predominantly by white students, Princeton. As Princeton is now acknowledging amidst the you know, in you know, context of the Black Lives Matter movement, it's acknowledging its own racist past, which is significant. Princeton used to be called the university that was the farthest north that any young white student would be sent. So, in other words, Princeton was a place where privileged Southern families would send their boys, their sons. That was the farthest north they would send their sons to college. So it had an association with the antebellum south. And that's where I went to school, a white student. And I'll always remember something, though. This was an education that didn't actually occur on the grounds of Princeton University. My best college friend was from the deep south, Louisiana, southwest Louisiana, white. She came to Princeton from pretty much the furthest end of the cultural spectrum in the United States that one could, I think, probably come from, which was rural southwest Louisiana, on the bayou. Her father was a shrimp fisherman, and here she was at Princeton. We were roommates. We got to be really close, really good friends. And in my sophomore year at college, she invited me to go down to Louisiana to visit her family. I had never been to the South, let alone a rural community as she was from. And her family was so welcoming to me that I actually felt more at home there than I did in my own neighborhood. It was very, very, very striking. 
When I went back to Princeton after the two weeks that I was there with her, her family having taken me in, the neighbors having taken me in, her extended family, you know, the extended community, I mean, I went into a sort of culture shock because it was as if I felt more at home down there than I think I'd ever had. So we were driving one day, my friend and I with her dad. Her dad was driving in their pickup truck on a country road during my visit down there. And there was a African-American man by the side of the road hitchhiking. And without blinking an eye, my friend's dad pulls over and picks him up. And I realized, dear listener, that I would have never done that. That if that same scenario had happened in my neck of the woods where I was raised north of New York City in Westchester County, if there had been, you know, if I, let's say, was with my family or or with... If the same situation had in some way, shape, or form occurred up there, I would never have done that. I would have felt apprehensive, scared, you know, strange, um, insecure. You see, the fact that her dad there in rural Louisiana hesitated not one iota to pick up this man revealed to me in that one instance the conditioning that I had inherited as a white girl growing up in America, in the northeast of America, in a fairly privileged circumstance, in a white community, that was a moment of illumination for me. So everything that I described to you before about the separation of the black and white communities in the United States, you see, I grew up in that, I was born into that, And that was the effect. I saw it in that moment in a split second. It was like a moment of self-illumination, of self-revelation. It was like, oh my God. I always think of myself because of how I grew up with my grandmother and my mom, etc., as a progressive person, as somebody who is not, quote-unquote, racist, you know, all of that. But these things go really deep. They go really deep. They're sort of sewn into the fabric of who we are by virtue of how we grow up, you see? And I I saw it. I suddenly realized that I wasn't the person I thought I was, that I, I was different to what I thought I was because I would have chose something different in that moment, in that truck, you know? And I'm not, I mean, all things being equal, I'm not talking about a woman, you know, not picking up a man, you know, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about simply the issue of, of race. That's what I'm talking about. So that was really something. I mean, I learned more in that moment than in quite a lot of what happened for me at Princeton. (laughs) There in that truck in rural Louisiana, driving with my friend and her father. I learned something really important about who I was and am. I'm wrought from this. So I want to kind of bring these elements 
into the four because this is literally what I've experienced, what I've observed, what I continue to observe, you see? So now I'm going to add one more thing, all right? Because by the grace of God, I have been given the gift of music. And music for me is something that is so deep in my cells that that it comes and goes from a place that is uncolored by prejudice. I just know that. It's it's how I connect with the forces of the universe, of, of God, of of life. And when I was growing up, my mom had a very big record collection. And one of the records that she had was by an African-American guitar singer-songwriter named Hootie Ledbetter. His nickname was Leadbelly. As I was growing up as a girl in this white community, you know, having the opportunity to play piano and to learn the piano, I was listening to that record that my mom had. And what I was hearing was the blues because this man was a forefather of the blues. His music went out into culture in a way that seeded the blues into life in general, into the minds and hearts of many musicians, black and white, around the world. This man, together with other African-American musicians of that time, the 30s, 40s, Leadbelly passed away in 1949. Tough life. His music continued on, and his music found its way into my home as I was growing up. So while I was learning Bach and Mozart and Debussy and these other wonderful classical composers, all white, all European, I was hearing also the blues. I was hearing the 78 record that my mom had by Leadbelly. And that influence came into my life in a really profound way because I found as a girl of 11 and 12 and 13, life was pretty tough emotionally. You know, my mom ended up having this really bad accident and anyway, things were not easy. So when I was sitting at the piano, especially in the evening, the greatest satisfaction and solace that I would experience would be when my fingers, as they moved on the keys, would begin to generate different sounds, modern sounds, sounds that I was hearing that were not classical, but that were coming out of that blues tradition, and then rock, you know, 
I was a child of the late 60s and early 70s, so I was hearing incredible music, plus these records that my mom had, which were the seeds of that music, right? Lead Belly. He influenced, you know, generations of musicians to come, and I'm among them. So when I was growing up and trying to grapple with really tough circumstances emotionally and psychologically and sitting at the keyboard and beginning to realize that my fingers could move on the keys and create the sounds that I was hearing on that record, then I started to feel better. That blues music was something that was helping me feel better in my own life. It was a balm. It was soothing. It was connecting me to God, to that which was so beyond me and distinct from the circumstances of my young life that I knew I felt safe. I felt peaceful. It was as if I was lifted out of everything and placed connected to a realm that was untouched by that suffering. Now, they say about the blues that if you've got the blues and you play the blues, it takes your blues away. And there's no question that for untold numbers of people and so many African-Americans, musicians, and others, you know, throughout these last generations, that music, right? For years and years and years going back, going back, back, back through all of the suffering that that music was helpful, that it was a balm, like I'm describing, that was connecting oneself to that place which is untouched by the brutality, right, that so many African Americans experienced in the most incredible way, right? It's all coming out now. It's been going on forever, for a long time, centuries. And so, dear listener, it's a very interesting fabric of influences and experience and events. You see, because as a white girl growing up in a middle-class neighborhood, environment, community, with the privilege that that bestowed and bestows upon me, everything that I describe to you is a part of my experience and on the one hand when I play that music I feel so close to the person the people who created it in this case Lead Belly right when he sings Irene, good night. 
Irene, good night. Irene, good night. Irene, good night. I'll see you in my dreams. It's so beautiful, dear listener. What a gift we've been given, all of us. When he sees his love in his dreams, and I sing that song and I feel the poignancy of it, what it means to see one's love in one's dreams. We're one in that place, dear listener. We are one in that longing, in that place, in that music, in that sentiment, in that lilting evocation of a kind of universal human experience. And the beauty of music, you know, is that it can bring us there. And that is my hope. If I have anything to offer, it would be to be able to bring to the world, as I'm endeavoring to do, that which transcends the differences that which is inherently healing. Because when I listen to Lead Belly, as I have since I was probably six or seven or eight, that music healed me. His music healed me. In every way. And maybe now I can turn, return the favor to express that sentiment, which is really something that joins us all. We're really not separate. We're not separate. So much suffering has been perpetrated because of the conviction that we are. I see it in my own life. I've observed it from the time I was very young, when Ruby would go back to her neighborhood, when that man came into that pizza place, bleeding. What I feel I can offer is the gift that's been given to me of this love, of a kind of musical legacy and a cultural legacy of that which has helped save me, of that which I can now bring myself to the world knowing that music is one way to heal this whole thing. And together with all that's coming out now so that our consciousness individually and collectively is being raised, I'm making this podcast now because of everything that's happened in the Black Lives Matter movement, you see? So it's affected me. I didn't make this two, three, four months ago. It's raised my awareness, my consciousness. Something is different now for many of us individually and collectively, and that's really important. It's a beautiful thing. So I go back to music because... 
Music is something that we can just immediately tap into and we know that we're one, we're really, really one. So I think about Lead Belly, Hootie Ledbetter, and I think about him singing, Irene Goodnight, and I think about how that was one of the earliest things I ever heard in my home, and how sitting there at the piano and thinking of what I was hearing on his record helped me, and how maybe that means something about what I can give now. So with that, dear listener, I'll play you that music and I'll sing it to you one more time. Irene, good night. Irene, good night. Irene, good night. Irene, good night. I'll see you in my dreams.